Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is strictly confidential. How you doing, Jackson? I am doing well, Smasher. How about you? You're sounding pretty fresh. I believe you. Uh, I'm doing well, although my skeleton is upset. Yeah, why is your skeleton upset? <laughs> Would you allow me to vent to you for... Five to six. Minutes? Five to six. Minutes sounds like the exact amount of time I'll allow you to vent to me. Okay, well, when you... And I've talked about this... Before we dive in, is this Asher speaking or Asher's skeleton speaking? This is Asher speaking on behalf of the skeleton. So the usual. Yeah. Sitting under fluorescent lights in a small fabric box known as a cubicle really fills you with a, I'm gonna say impotent rage, knowing full well that that's not really the best way to describe it, but it sounds right. So I'm gonna say impotent rage. And there's no better outlet for that than a small metal show, which is where I was last night, and why my skeleton hurts now, because even though I'm only 25, I'm already not nearly as bendable as I was at 15, and I'm feeling the effects this morning. But so small, small metal show, you mean metal musicians, right? Not like a, a, perform- a performative welding concert? <laughs> I did not go see fantasy dwarves <laughs> craft swords on stage. It was a metal concert, metal music, and complete with a very small mosh pit. And that's actually what I talk about because I used to be the kind of person who would stand in the back, arms folded, nodding my head and enjoying the metal music, but pretty much terrified of the kerfuffle going on near the front of the stage. Uh, always been a small guy, used to be underweight pretty significantly. I figured that I didn't stand a chance in the mosh pit. But now, see, there's a secret, okay, that if you haven't been to a punk or a metal show, the mosh pit is kind of a scary thing because you're just there to enjoy some music, and then people start hurting each other. And it's kind of understandable why everyone else kind of, like, backs up and clears out for the uh, group of guys who just want to twirl their arms around and bump into each other. But there's a secret to a mosh pits, and that's that everyone wants to fight and to not hurt each other. It is the sheer joy of play fighting. And it is, for me, so cleansing and so much fun. And it's, I want to encourage others to jump in. Because you really, you get out of it what you put in. The mosh pit is a lot like life. See, I went in a little too hard at the start. Like arms flailing, elbows up, ready to be in a brawl. And that's the most beat up I've ever been. Nowadays, I just put my hands up and I'm, I'm Spike Spiegel, baby. I'm Bruce Lee. I just go with the flow. Be like water. You know, you don't have to be a noodle. Don't get pushed around. But you kind of like, you feel the rhythm. You move around bodies. Completely unscathed. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Move around. It's mosh pit time. I'm crowd surfing, but I'm just on the ground. And it's so much fun. That does sound fun. You know, what my, you know where my fear of mosh pitting comes from? Was it a ex- traumatic experience? I'm glad you asked. Yes, it was a traumatic experience. When I was in high school, one of my best friends was in a very successful, in Austin at least, 
um, heavy metal band, and he's actually still in a heavy metal band, and I wish I could remember the name of it. But he played guitar, and he used to do this thing where he would throw his guitar over his shoulder and it would spin back around. You know Hell I mean? yes. Pretty baller. But he was at the front of the show, and when he threw his guitar up, it sliced a guy's face open. Jeez. That guy ended up getting like 12 stitches or something, but didn't leave the concert until after it was <laughs> over. Because he... He craved that good, good mosh I'm, that he I'm needed. I'm throwing up two devil horns right now. Rock and roll, baby. <laughs> and so that's what scared me from moshing. Um, my dad and I went to a Judas Priest concert a couple of years ago, and we were right outside the mosh pit group. But I've, I've always held that fear from the time this hardcore man got his face sliced. Yeah, I will say from my limited experience that the sm at a small mosh pit is a good starter place. I mean... On, on one hand, it's like with fewer bodies, you get more the ability to gain more momentum when you're running into each other. But at the same time, people are more aware that you have other individuals with yeah. fragile skeletons. And the second someone falls down, like everyone scoops them back up and makes sure they're okay. I think another problem for me is that I don't have that kind of multitasking in me. Yeah. Is that when I go to a concert, my thought is, I want to stand here and listen to these guys perform music I can listen to on Spotify. But if I'm running around and flailing my arms and trying to kind of lightly bump my skeleton into other fans of the show, I'm going to have to take time or effort to also think, oh, shoot, I got to listen to music, too. No, the music is just the background. It's just the background music for this facade of a brawl. So you're going to the metal concert for the purpose of moshing instead of for the purpose of listening to the music well the music does have to be good that's the fuel that's the energy that you then expel on other people okay okay i get that yeah just to give you i mean if you're scared of a mosh pit this is the last thing i'll say on it after we got done with the show everyone's out of breath and very sweaty slightly bruised and scraped a guy who was next to me at the entire show shook my hand and said it was pleasant being around you <laughs> that's a pretty good compliment we just became everyone you're a bro with everyone there's no strangers after the mosh you are one with the mosh you want to dive right into today's topic yes i have so, complete ignorance about the before topic. before we do that i wanted to preface something a little bit more serious mm. than our show i was listening to npr's this American Life this last week, and they did a show about Alex Jones and about Infowars. And I'd like to come out as saying that we don't take conspiracy theories seriously on this show. Yeah. Right? There are some conspiracy theories that we are going to enlighten you about, but we want to make sure that our theories are fun and in no way potentially harming to any people. Right. Yeah. And so I just wanted to come out and say that we want to, as a show focused on the the wacky ins and out of the world, the weird, mysterious theories, separate ourselves and say there's an intentional reason we're doing stuff like the moon is fake as opposed to the moon landing was fake. Absolutely. And I think I just want to take this time to separate ourselves from Alex Jones in any way possible and say that. If there's anything ever that you find to be offensive or anything about our show, please let us know and we will 100% hear you out and 
apologize. Yeah, that's a big deal to us. And at the beginning of the show, we definitely discussed um, more classic. Wow, classic is a strange word to use there. More well-known conspiracy theories and whether or not we would address them on the show. And we decided that the whole point that we wanted to... I mean, the reason that we chose Strictly Confidential and Conspiracies is that we wanted to show that there are wonderful secrets everywhere you look and that if you look deeper, there's something interesting you can find anywhere. Like, everything has a storied past and there's lots of things that people miss. We did not want to inspire fear or paranoia at any point. Our goal is to inspire wonder and if at any point we, we go too far down a rabbit hole or we say something that we don't know much about, which is most of the things we talk about, we want to address that. And we want to make sure that we clarify and <laughs> fix our mistakes so that we don't upset anyone. Because we're not just trying to stir fear for the sake of um, audible clickbait, I guess. We want this show to be fun. And it's as much of a learning experience for us as it is for listeners or followers of the show in any way. And the biggest thing that convinced me I wanted to make this a specific point is this whole episode of This American Life. The first act of it comes from the perspective of a father of a child who died at Sandy Hook mm. and how he met several Alex Jones followers who didn't believe Sandy Hook happened and thought he was an actor. We don't. That sounds awful. This show, the purpose of the show is to make you laugh and to make you think, oh, maybe today I could learn a little bit more about Bigfoot because learning something about Bigfoot, to my knowledge, isn't going to hurt anybody. Yeah. Whereas, whereas other stuff can. And I think at the beginning of the show, we talked a decent amount about, okay, do we ever address these larger political conspiracy theories? And I think what we've both decided is that that kind of thing is something that we are neither qualified to talk about or interested in potentially even stepping into that territory, really. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that's why we'll do stuff like talk for 30 minutes about the TV show ALF in the middle of an episode, because we want this to be an enjoyable experience, which I guess those two things may be counterintuitive. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, and is there anything else you feel like needs to be said about that? No, I mean, at the beginning of the show, again, we kind of had, I had actually had had friends, close friends warn me, it's like, I have relatives who've gone way too far into conspiracy theories and it's ruined their lives, so be careful. And I had to basically explain, no, 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 this is a comedy show with the theme of secrets and conspiracies. And that distinction was something that was hopefully clear from the very beginning, and here in episode 41, we want to make it abundantly clear in case it wasn't. And I think you'll notice that at the beginning of the show, we talked a lot more about conspiracy theories as an idea of themselves or in and of themselves. And we've kind of pivoted away from that to the point where none of our bios or anything even have anything about conspiracy theories. And the topics we're talking about now are more stuff like listen to this crazy story or... This uh, this cryptid is wild um, or America secretly tried to blow up the moon. So we still want to dabble in the conspiracy theory realm, but yeah. we have intentionally avoided the focus of politics in this. And yes, we have our own political biases. So you will hear that to some extent. But our goal isn't to offend or strike fear. 
Anyway, do you want to hear what today's topic is? I do. Today's topic is, is Guy Fieri a good person? (laughs) (laughs) I took a big swig of coffee and you almost killed me on air. That wasn't a joke, by the way. That was all serious and true, but you definitely got me. I, I was like braced for impact and I was ready for some some conspiracy about President Bush. So the reason I wanted to talk about this is because it's actually something I'm very passionate about. Whereas a lot of these topics have been something I've thought, okay, what do I want to talk about today? And then I've Google searched interesting cryptid or crazy American cultural story and found something that I loved by the end, but didn't know that much about at the beginning. This one is something I've thought about for a long time. I think that Guy Fieri is unfairly judged because of his, I don't know, I mean, his his brand is very much the kind of brand that says, I am Guy Fieri. I'm going to wear t-shirts that have flame decals on them. But I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper to see because I've been reading a lot about him and he's actually a really great guy. Okay. That's what I like to hear. Because, I mean, a so, lot of his, a lot of what I think of when I think of Guy Fieri is, Fieri, excuse me is just the branding. Um, I can speak more towards Bob Ross, who I adore, because I know that the the, the perm afro was essentially branding that that his producer wouldn't allow him to cut because it became so iconic. And I imagine a lot of Guy and his persona, he's probably aware that a hot rod flame bowling shirt isn't exactly the, uh, the tightest fit, the nicest look, but it's a brand. But I don't know anything beyond the brand, so I'm excited to hear more about the man. The myth. The Fieri. So I I started off by diving into his actual personal website because he has a short about section there. And it says, Guy Ramsey Fieri, chief restaurateur, New York Times bestselling author and Emmy award-winning host, began his love affair with food at the age of 10, selling soft pretzels from a three-wheeled bicycle cart he built with his father called the Awesome Pretzel Cart. <laughs> so cute. It's, it's a good origin story. And then after six years of saving enough money, he took a trip to study abroad in France that inspired him to go to the University of Nevada in Las Vegas and graduate with a degree in hospitality management. And his television journey started in 2006 when he won the second season of Food Network Star and started his, uh, got signed for six seasons of a show called Guy's Big Bite. And since Wait, then he, yeah. This is a, so there was a contest to find a new Food Network host? Is that what that was? It looks like the premise of the show is you try and perform on the show and then you are given a contract for the show, for a show on the network, which is a crazy way to start a sh- channel, I guess. So then Guy Fieri is like one of those American Idol stars, which, by the way, 2005 definitely checks out because that was like the peak of that talent search, you know, go to different cities and let the let the star come to us. American Idol kind of craze. I feel like every network was trying to have that. But not all the American Idol winners go on to actually have a successful music career. Guy is one of those success stories. And so it actually looks like most of these winners get an inaugural six-episode trial season. So that's what he was awarded. But the show actually ended up running for 13 seasons. Guy's Big Bite. And since then, since that 
uh, fateful day in 2005, or 2006 was when he won. He's opened 63 restaurants around the world and written six best-selling cookbooks. And I think one thing that we're going to address a decent amount in this is that, yes, he's got bleached blonde hair. Yes, he says the word flavor town a lot. Yes, he sells a product called donkey sauce. <laughs> we're not denying any of these. But I think that's part of what makes him so great is that this man cares so little about what other people think of him that he is so ready to be whatever Guy Fieri wants to be. Yeah. And yeah, he does have to do a lot of work to take care of the brand he's developed. But that brand is so different than any other person that he is just, if you saw Guy Fieri, there's not a single chance you'd be like, is that Guy Fieri or just somebody who looks like him? Right. I mean, in Eater uh, last year, around Christmas time, did a the 12 days of Guy Fieri, where they did they broke down a bunch of different things. So they have a section where they talk about the pretzel cart and a section where they talk about his style. And in the style one, they say, as anyone who's ever bleached their hair regularly knows, it's not a fun process and it takes serious commitment. Hmm. It, even if the leather jackets, Oakland Raiders gear, colorful bandanas, and pinky rings are lost on you, you've still got to respect that dedication to style. Yeah, there's an inherent work ethic that comes with bleached blonde hair. As much, as wild as it is, every show that I've ever watched with Guy Fieri in it, and I've watched an embarrassing amount of divers, oh man, uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives. There you go. Which is a hard name to say. That's why all the fans every, just call it Triple D. Triple D, XXX, 420 Blaze It with Guy Fieri. Um, every episode of that show he is going to a restaurant and talking with the people whose passion created this restaurant and just excited to be there as opposed to so many other reality shows where especially stuff like Gordon Ramsay, where the appeal is that this guy yells at people while they're working on what they've worked on their whole life. Yeah. I mean, you can see how you have this guy who has a childlike, not innocence, but excitement for other people's work and other people's passions. And it's a really refreshing take when you compare it to all the other shows where they basically come in and just put people on blast or mock them for whatever, to just have someone who is excited to try new foods, be in new places, meet new people. It's exciting. And sure, it's, it's a little silly sometimes, but the idea of going to a place and thinking, I don't care how you rank, how your restaurant ranks among other Philly cheesesteaks in Cincinnati or whatever. I love how this sauce tastes on this sandwich. It, it reminds me of, I last year watched a lot of the show Ugly Delicious with Dave Chang, which is a very good food show on Netflix if any of you guys need something to watch. But they're the first episode is each episode is about a different kind of food and he goes in deep on finding the best of that kind of food. But he finds the best pizza chef in New York City and buys him Domino's and talks <laughs> okay. and talks and talks about how, yeah, it's not Neapolitan style, delicious Chicago style, even pizza or anything like that. But it's very good. And the process is very fast. And it he likes how the app will tell you what they're doing. <laughs> we all love how the app tells you how it's doing and you can even choose the voice 
But that kind of joyful appeal is what makes Guy Fieri so fun, right? Yeah, I mean, there's not one shred of pretentiousness in the fiber of his being. That's what I like so much. And it's not like when he goes home at night, he deep fries like a duck and then coats it in nacho cheese before covering it in jalapenos and then chugging a mug of donkey sauce. He did an interview with the Today Show uh, a while ago where they asked him the one food he couldn't live without. And after a bunch of bullying reporting saying nonsense like, and the fact that it's not donkey sauce may surprise you, or the fact that it's not a 12 patty burger may surprise you. But he said the food that he can't live without is Brussels sprouts. What? Okay. Like this, this man has a balanced plant-based diet when he's not driving around the country in a Corvette. And that he talks about how his sons... It, both men, white men in college will voluntarily eat balanced plant-based meals, meaning it's enough a part of his life that he raised for 18 full years two sons that care about what they're putting in their body. Yeah, I mean, I guess what you're seeing on TV when he's just like dunking his hands down in some sauce, that's very much he's actively indulging and he's not... The man has loved food since he was 10 years old, and he's not an idiot when it comes to nutrition, I guess. I mean, the fact that he is fit enough to have multiple restaurants, best-selling books, travel the nation, and eat fried foods, there must be some healthy, balanced nutrition going on in between those things. Yeah, and just all of this stuff was very revealing to me during the research, but the biggest thing I had known a little bit about him, but not much is his charity work. His website only has three paragraphs on the About Him page, and the last one is all about his support of charities, which I believe shows how much he genuinely cares about that. If his website only has three paragraphs about him, I mean, the so first, the awesome pretzel cart is still running as a part of his Cooking with Kids Foundation. Oh, that's great. It's uh, focused on raising money to put children in kitchens where they can learn basic cooking, and then if they want to extend that education into more of a culinary or a, a, a conventional kitchen environment. I love that. He set up a lower cost, better quality grocery store in his hometown of Santa Rosa that before anything expires, they take it to a local mission and donate it. That's great. I, I, you got to love the hometown support also. And as they get older, that gets more important. And then in October 2017, during the fires in California, he set up a makeshift barbecue mess hall that fed approximately 5,000 evacuees, first responders, and military personnel every day. Man, I love that. That he's also doing good with the thing that he's passionate and skilled with. And then that day, he said to a news network, this isn't a PR stunt. You don't see my banners up. I'm not promoting anything. I'm just here cooking. This is feeding people. People need help, and I'm here to help. That's it. Yeah, how can you not love that? Honestly, at this point, the only thing that bothers me about this man is that diners, drive-ins, and dives doesn't use an Oxford comma in the official spelling. <laughs> I mean, I, I love this man. I'm comfortable saying I love Guy Fieri. I'm glad that we've gone beyond the meme because that was all I knew, and I know that he's a very popular joke right now he's kind of a punchline in and of himself but it's cool to see that you know he's an actual person glad that he's actually doing something he's passionate about definitely an admirable dude 
But yeah, do you wanna do you wanna hop into our bright yellow 2008 Lamborghini and drive to the ski lift? I'm proud of you for not saying drive to Flavortown. So let's go. Sometimes the stars align and we talk about politics at the beginning of the show and then we talk about food and then I have a Snopes that's about politics and food. Today's Snopes. Did President Obama once spend $65,000 on hot dogs? I mean, who hasn't? The claim. A leaked email proves that President Obama once spent $65,000 of taxpayer money on hot dogs. The Clip art for this being a gourmet, delicious-looking hot dog, which I don't imagine would be what you would get if you're having $65,000 worth. I'm imagining just the most ballpark, questionable Franks. Questionable Franks is such a good name for a hot dog brand. Or a punk band. The notion that President Obama purchased $65,000 worth of hot dogs for a private party came from a single email chain published by WikiLeaks in October 2012 as part of the so-called Global Intelligence Files, or GIF, or JIF, depending on who you ask. This email was not sent by President Obama or any member of his administration. Rather, the email chain, dated 14th of May 2009, involves various employees at the intelligence company Stratfor discussing a, quote, Chicago hot dog party. Stratford Fred Stratford's there's no D there. Stratford's Fred Burton responded to an email by writing, I think Obama spent about $65,000 of taxpayers' money flying in pizza slash dogs from Chicago for a private party at the White House not long ago. Assume we are using the same channels, question mark. So this single message was not proof that President Obama spent this money on hot dogs. It was mere speculation or possibly an attempt at humor about a supposed exorbitant expenditure by the Obama administration. The email was not accompanied by any evidence to support this literal reading and did not originate with, it, with a member of the Obama administration or from anyone in attendance at this alleged hot dog party. Could we not call it a hot dog party? Inter Sausage party. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that. Interestingly, this isn't the first time quote-unquote hot dog has appeared in an email and used as an attempt to smear the Obama administration because back in 2016, this innocuous email exchange was used to push the Pizzagate, something we're not going to get into, conspiracy theory. Infowars? I definitely, side note, thought you were going to say, this is not the first time hot dog has been used in an email. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm excited to see where this goes. But imagine if it was. Infowars... Alec Jones, oh boy, man, all the callbacks today. He himself even claimed that hot dog was actually code for male prostitutes. Uh-oh. I bet you Alex Jones has never had a hot dog. <laughs> okay, we're pivoting our podcast to this. Alex Jones and the Questionable Franks. If you notice that our RSS feed changes to that title next week, go on. If we get a listener for that, I will consider it a success. While Jones once used the term hot dog to push a baseless conspiracy theory concerning pedophilia and sex trafficking, by January 2019, hey, that's this year and why we're talking about it. 
This code word for male prostitutes had reverted back to the reference to the ordinary food item in order to launch a new, yet similarly baseless, attack on Obama. We're still doing that. 2019. Still attacking Obama. We reached out to Pete Souza, Obama's official White House photographer, to determine if he had ever seen his former boss with a suspiciously large amount of hot dogs. He told us I shot almost 2 million photographs of the chief official White House photographer during my eight... Wait a minute. Let's try that again. He told us, I shot almost 2 million photographs as the chief official White House photographer during my eight years in the Obama administration. All right, guy, we already already know you're legit. Come on. Every picture was transferred to the National Archives. And I can assure you, there is not a single photo of President Obama with 20,000 hot dogs. That is oddly specific, guy. There are four photos. There is... A photo of President Obama with 19,000 hot dogs. Get your facts straight. But there you go. That's about as political as we're going to get. A smear campaign. About smear and mustard. About these vehicles for honey mustard. Would you put honey mustard on a hot dog? Am I wild and out on that one? I don't think you would. I have, but it's only because I have honey mustard at my house. And I was like, well, the, the spicy brown mustard... We don't have very much left, and I don't want to end up getting some of that juice on there. I've been in that place where I've put honey mustard on a hot dog and not been crazy disappointed. There was a period in my life where I was certain that putting mayonnaise on a hot dog was the wave, and my lower intestine still works, so I'm thankful every day for my life. Mayonnaise is underrated. Maybe we'll do an episode about that, but we don't want to be too controversial. Mayonnaise is underrated, but on a hot dog? I'm getting nauseous thinking about what I used to do. I'm ashamed, but... I'm intrigued. But I feel safe in this environment, so I'm comfortable being vulnerable with you and our listeners. I appreciate that. Well, that's all we got, right? That's all we do, man. Well, if you managed to derive any enjoyment out of hearing me talk about mayonnaise, you definitely enjoyed listening to our theme song, because that was some actual quality audio. That was Threadbare by Glimmerl, off the album Burden of Proof. We are huge fans of Glimmerl here, not just because he gave us that theme song to use for the show, but he has a new album out, EP rather, and it is genuinely fantastic. So please go check that out. Spotify, iTunes, places where you stream music, and GlimmerlMusic.com. Also, thanks to Connor Voigt for Hit the Snopes. Not an excellent rendition, but an excellent jingle, and we're really grateful to have it. Yeah. If you want to follow us on any of our social media to get updated on what we're doing, what we're saying, maybe some behind-the-scenes stuff if we're feeling frisky, uh, we have we have a Twitter at sconfidentshow and an Instagram at strictlyconfidentialshow. And if you want to reach out and send us any complaints, any ideas for topics, any questions you have that you want answered, any videos... I always come up with something new for each of these lists, so if you have any ideas for things I can ask for in these email lists, that as well. Um, Yeah, our email address is strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. Come be on the show. Talk to us about your favorite Guy Fieri moments. We would love to interview you if there's something you're passionate about or an experience you've had that is particularly haunting or mysterious. Uh, would definitely like to have someone on the show at some point who's had a paranormal experience. Still haven't done that, so hit me up if you've seen a ghost. And tell your best friend about this show if you enjoyed it, because word of mouth is the most powerful form of marketing. You simply can't buy it. 
you have to have passionate people spreading the word for you. And it helps so much. We appreciate it so much. And I think the last thing, if you, uh, then more of a personal announcement, I've started a YouTube channel at Old Jackson Boy. So if you search Old Jackson Boy, you can find it. And I spell boy the traditional way, not with an I, although I did consider that. But it's mostly, uh, I, I think, well-produced videos that are gaming analysis and kind of fun and funny. I'm trying to have a decent amount of fun with it, and I'm enjoying it. So if you uh, like what you see there, like and subscribe. Yeah, if you're into nerdy video essays, you can't go wrong. Also, old is spelled the non-traditional way, just O-L. Yes, good, good point. Should we spell out the whole thing? We should not. That's bad audio content. I'll let them figure it out. All lowercase, no spaces. The way it should be. The way God intended. So, I think that's all we do. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been Jackson. And I've been Asher. And this has been Strictly Confidential. And as always, be grateful for your one-way ticket to Flavortown. Flavortown.